So we're spending the, we're spending the summer talking about uh, three people in the Old Testament. Uh, Abraham, uh, we're going to talk about David some the rest of July, and then uh, we're going to talk about Jacob in August. Now, we're not, we're not doing uh, in-depth studies of these people, but we are uh, using some insights from their experience to ask the question, what kind of heart are we to pursue? What kind of heart are we to pursue? What is our heart's posture in this world and in our relationship with God? There's a wonderful little passage in Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 13 where he speaks about David taking Saul's place. And in verse 22 of Acts 13, it says, And when he had removed him, Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do my will. And we know David's story. So that's quite a tribute, isn't it, to, uh, uh, to David. He's a man after my heart who will do my will. What does it mean to be a person after the heart of God? A person going after, reflecting the heart of God. Well, at the very least, it means this. It means that what is a priority for God is a priority for me. Whatever is a priority for God is a priority for me. And what is ultimately on the heart of God? What is God's great design? Now, this is where we're jumping up at that 30,000-foot level we've been kind of cruising at here as we look at Abraham and, and, and we'll continue as we get to David next week. But I want to jump up there and as we ask that question, what, what is it that is God's priority for us? Whatever occupies God should occupy me. And from Genesis to Revelation, throughout the entire book, we see this wonderful thread, this thread of, of, um, of God's heart, of God's great priority. Let me read this to you. I copied it into the notes today for those of you that are following along. What is ultimately on the heart of God? Through the saving work of Jesus Christ and the agency of the Holy Spirit, God the Father is gathering a people to dwell among who will declare His praises, delight in the joy of His triune love, and participate in the eternal plan of His ever-expanding glory and dominion. I think that's probably one of the best paragraphs I've ever written. <laughs> I love that. That is God's great priority. God's great plan for us to be a people among whom He dwells and to have a people for Himself who will declare His glory and His praise, who will delight in participating in the triune love of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and who will participate 
in his ever-expanding kingdom throughout the ages. In Exodus 33, God is speaking with Moses, who's interceding with God. And he says, Moses says this to God. And um, let, me, let me reword it in the verses there. Uh, Exodus 33, 15 through 16. And he said to them, he said to him, this is Moses talking to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? What makes the church of Jesus Christ distinct from every other people? On the face of the earth, it is that God abides among us, that his presence abides with us, that we are built together as living stones, as a dwelling place for Almighty God. It is his presence that distinguishes us and calls us out as different. We want to be a people among whom God dwells. Well, we see this priority all through Scripture. Let me just remind you, we see this first in God's call to Abraham that we've talked about at some length now. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the Lord says to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will dishonor, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We are a product of that promise to Abraham. How are all the families of the earth blessed? Because who is the seed of Abraham that is the focus? It's the Messiah. It's Jesus Christ who is going to be the seed of Abraham, who will come through him, through the line of David, who will come into the world as our Savior and as our Lord. We see this in God's desire expressed to Moses in a different section of Exodus. In Exodus 19, 5 and 6, I, this passage, I love this passage. It almost breaks my heart when I read it because it expresses something of God's heart that was not to be realized at that time and among those people. He said, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Who were the priests? The priests were those who drew near to God. You will be a people who draw near to me, and you will be my holy nation in the earth. We see this in the prayer of Jesus in John 17. As Jesus is praying, he's praying for things that are both present and things in the future. Some things that can begin to happen in the present and some things that can only be actualized in the time after 
the new heavens and the new earth. Listen, John 17. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I. Jesus is praying here for you and I and for believers who will come after us. He says that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. You know, I, I, um, they will know we are Christians by our love. Remember that song? They will know we are Christians by our love. The Bible speaks about our need for unity and oneness and love in order that the world may know. And there's much in Christendom these days that would discourage the world as they look on from believing that we were any kind of bastion of unity and and uh, of one heart and of one mind. We are seeking to pursue that, but I want to say to you that there is a day when the perfection of that oneness will only come when He comes. It will only come when He comes, and the world will only know fully when it sees the body revealed in Jesus Christ. When that day comes that God comes to judge the world, there will be a knowing, not only among us that we have entered into our redemption, but a knowing among the world that they have missed that opportunity of redemption. Verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Now, that's speaking to something future. May be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. As you read those prayers, you can see there's just things there in that prayer that are post-resurrection types of prayers, even end-of-time types of prayers. But what is this significant idea? He says, Father, I want them to be with me where I am to see my glory. I want to dwell with them. That little, that little peak that he gave to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration when for a moment they saw him transfigured, they saw his glory shining out. When they saw Jesus wants us all to be with him, to see his glory. We see it in Paul's letter to the Galatians, Galatians 3, 7 through 14. He says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. If we depend on our works, 
we are not part of that faith. Verse 11, now it's evident that no one's justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Why? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive, so that God might dwell with us, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. What is the point of the promise of the Spirit? God dwelling in us. If you are a believer today in Christ, you are a person in whom the Holy Spirit is dwelling. I don't think any of us really comprehend fully what that means. God is dwelling in you. God longed to be with a people among whom He could dwell. And because of Christ, the promise of the Spirit has come upon us and has entered into us. Be filled with the Spirit, the Scripture says. Be filled with God. Be filled with God. Be filled with His presence dwelling in you. We see it in Peter's letter to the church, my favorite letter at this point, as you know, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Your Exodus, you hear God's voice in Exodus, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And because of that mercy, God has come to dwell in you. He is abiding in you. His presence is with us and in us. We see it in, finally in Revelation, in the letter the Apostle John wrote, in Revelations 5, 9 through 10, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be, what? A kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And they shall reign on the earth. The meek, those who are submitted to God, those who are filled with the Spirit, they will inherit the earth. The earth reborn, the earth remade, the earth brand new. God's priority is to be among a people, to dwell among a people whom He fills, who will delight in the love that He shares with us and participate in His ongoing kingdom work. So that everywhere we go, 
We are ambassadors for Christ. Everywhere we go, we are carrying the treasure of God's presence. Everywhere we go. And when we cooperate with the Holy Spirit, and we intercede for someone as we're impressed to, as we bring a word of encouragement to someone, as we give to someone, as we share Christ with someone, as we pray for the sick, as we cast out demons, as we do kingdom stuff in our world, what's happening? We are God's presence in the world. We are partnering with Him in His kingdom expansion in this world. We're partnering with Him. <laughs> Sunday at the, on the mission trip, they wanted me to preach the Sunday service. So I preached, man. I preached my guts out. I preached gospel, 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 gospel. I knew there were unbelievers that were there. And I preached, man. I, I, I preached hard and I preached true. David said I was energetically orthodox on that, uh, in that. Uh, but I preached. And then I gave an altar call. Hands up those that want to respond to Christ. There's probably about, I don't know, a hundred and something folks that were, were there uh, that morning. So I, who's going to receive Christ? Who wants to say yes? Who wants to surrender to his love? And after all that preaching, during which time I, I literally provided my shirt a, a, a gallon of water uh, to hold and to be uh, drenched by. So I'm, I'm sweating. I'm tired. I've preached as hard as I know to preach. I've prayed. I've asked God. And so here we are. And there in, in the back, one, one lone person you know, raises raises their hand to say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. Now, that's not the kind of thing that, uh, that, that big evangelists write back and tell their constituents and their friends. I have this friend in Pakistan who's always has these big crusades, and it's like, you know, 8,000 came to Christ, you know, those, those kinds of things. And so we're just, I'm just there, and that, and that one person in the back raises their hand. And so we prayed together, and then I spoke with, with her afterwards, and I prayed. But listen, here's, but see, here's the thing. This is what's so wonderful about it, is that let me tell you what happened in that moment. In that moment, the kingdom of God was, was stationed in our team and in all the believers that were there. And then there were little outposts of darkness in that place as well. There were people who had not yet fully surrendered to Christ or come to Christ, and they had not come into the light. There was darkness. There was sin. There was separation from God. And what happened in that moment with that one person, and let me tell you something, all that preaching and praying and all that is worth it for that one person. Because that one person, you see, the kingdom of God broke through and expanded. If you picture a you can picture kind of a map where there's just light and when there's dark. And at one point, there had been darkness, and there was a, another light, another person 
in the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. How precious is one soul. How valuable is one soul. Would you pay for me to go back to Columbia for one soul? It's an interesting question, isn't it? How do we put that value? But, that, but what an incredible, wonderful thing to partner with Christ, to partner with him in the expansion of his kingdom. We are about that wherever we go. Well, let's bring this home then to Genesis 22, and we'll finish talking about Abraham this week. So in Genesis 22, God speaks to Abraham. And he asked him to do something unimaginable. Unimaginable. He says to him, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice, as a burnt offering. Now, our immediate reaction is, that's horrendous. It's terrible. People who are outside of the covenant of grace, who don't know the Lord, they would point to that as something, who, what kind of God is this that asks someone to sacrifice a, a child of theirs? Now, he was a young man. He was a grown young man, but nevertheless, it was a, a, a child. How, how can you do that? Why would you do that? What kind of God does that? Well, a God who understands us deals with us with what we know. And Abraham understood what God was saying because Abraham had a connection in his past to an area of the country and tribe that practiced child sacrifice. It wasn't something incredibly odd to Abraham. There's always been, throughout the ages, in godless areas, child sacrifice. Not every area, but in many of them. So when God says this to Abraham, God knows that he's putting Abraham to a test. He's not going to have Abraham follow through with this. He's putting Abraham to a test, but Abraham doesn't know. He says, I want you to offer your son, your only son. And Abraham's, okay, you know, you sure about this? I don't, I don't, I don't understand. This is, the, this is the child of promise, right? This is the child of promise. This is the one through whom you said uh, all the nations would be blessed. When, when Abraham looked at Isaac, everything about his purpose, everything about his identity, everything about who he was and what he was supposed to be about, his entire reason for existence at this point is summed up in that child. And you want me to, to sacrifice him? Now, we read today in Hebrews that it says of Abraham that he was acting in faith, believing that God would raise him from the dead. Do you think that made it easier? Do you think that as a human being that made it easier? Would it make it easier to plunge a knife into the breast of your child if you're just holding on in faith that God will raise him back up? So Abraham says, all right, God, I'm going to obey you. 
(laughs) Now, it's one thing to be asked to do something in the spur of the moment, right? Sometimes in the heat of the moment, we'll do things maybe that we feel noble about, we feel passionate about. God, I'm going to do this. God, I'm going to do that. And then we do it because we're in the, you know, in the passion of that moment, ready to obey. God says, no, no, no. I'm going to give you three days to think about this. I'm going to give you three days to dwell on this because I want you to go to this mountain and that's three days journey away from you. So I want you to kill your son, but before you do that, I'm going to send you on a three-day father-son camp out. You can spend male bonding time together. And so for three days, Abraham and Isaac and the men that were helping them, traveling with them, they're going about, they're camping, sitting by a fire, eating meals, Abraham knowing all the time what he had to do, what he had called to do. Can you imagine the wrestling match going on in his heart? Can you imagine the pain he felt every time he heard Isaac laugh? Every time he heard Isaac express wonder at something or interest in something or remember what God said to you, Father. You imagine for three days they're going through this. And they finally arrive at this mountain. And Abraham takes the wood and what's needed for the sacrifice. Isaac asks the question, where's the ram? You imagine the question. You imagine Abraham's heart just hearing that question. Father, you know, here's the wood. Here's, the, you know, here's everything we need. Where's the, where's the ram for the sacrifice? Don't worry, son. God will provide the ram. And so, Abraham turns to the men that are with him, and he says, the boy and I are going to go over there, and we are going to worship, and we will come again to you. Interesting, huh? We will come again to you, but we're going to go over there, and we are going to worship. Now, there's this thing in the Bible, or in Bible study, you've heard me talk about this before, called the law of first mention. And in hermeneutics, the idea of the law of first mention is wherever a subject first shows up in worship, or, a to- or I mean, whenever a topic first shows up in the Bible, there's usually a, a, um, uh, an idea or a, a seed of what that topic is going to be about throughout the, the Scriptures, or what the key idea of that topic is. And so, in Genesis 22, what we have is the very first mention ever of the word worship. The very first time the word worship shows up in the Bible, it does not refer to singing, it does not refer to praying, it doesn't refer to dancing or lifting hands or playing instruments. The very first time the word worship shows up in the Bible is when Abraham says, the boy and I are going to go over there and I'm going to do something unthinkable, I'm going to do something unimaginable. I'm believing we're going to come back to you, but I'm going to follow through and meet this test and do what God is asking me to do, even though I don't understand it, I don't get it, it doesn't seem right, it doesn't seem like the best choice, but I have to be obedient to God. 
I have to worship God. God's priority must be my priority. What is important to God must be important to me. And so you know the story. It's so famous. Abraham goes. He puts Isaac on the altar. He's ready to plunge the knife into his son. And an angel of the Lord speaks to him and says, Abraham, stop. And what does God say? He says, now I know, now I know that your heart is for me. Now I know that your heart is for me. Because you just took and you laid on an altar everything that defined you, everything that said who you are, your purpose, your identity, your goals, your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations, your legacy, your inheritance, your, your, your future, your name, your reputation. You just took and you laid it all there before me. And we're ready by faith to do what I asked you to do. See, Abraham had been through several tests up to that point. And repeatedly, Abraham had failed many of those tests. He hadn't obeyed God the first time God told him to go out. He didn't fully obey him the second time. He took people with him he wasn't supposed to take. There was situation after situation where Abraham was tested and found wanting. But in this moment, in this moment, God says to Abraham, now I know your heart is fully submitted to me. And how did Abraham define this? Worship. Worship. We will go and we will worship. So, how can we participate in this plan, this purpose of God? How can we do that? How can we, how can our hearts be fully on board with what is on the heart of God? How can my priorities be aligned to his priorities? How can his purpose become the ultimate purpose for me? The Bible tells us love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, because the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, they're passing away, but only those who do the will of God will remain. Uh, John reported in Revelation that Jesus said to one of the churches, this is what I have against you. You have lost your first love. You've lost your first love. You love the things of this world more than you love me. Your, your priorities are aligned more, you see, with the things you love in the world. They're not aligned with me. 
Let me tell you something, folks. I think all of us, I, I'll just speak for me. I am on a journey from loving the world to loving God fully. I, I'd love to tell you that I love God with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, all my mind, but I'd be lying to you. Would you be lying to me if you said that to me? That you can say unequivocally that you love God above all, with all your heart, with all, all your affections, all your mental power, all your physical strength, that you love Him. I, you know, if you do, God bless you. I'm a man in process. I am. I am. I want to get to the place where God's priorities and God's heart is my heart. And I want to love Him more and more. I want to love Him in a way that is, that is um, complete and full and not phony and not, and not inauthentic, but truly loving Him. And let me tell you, the only thing, the thing more than anything else that's moving me on my journey. It is not my prayer. It is not my Bible study. It's not my church attendance, not the Lord's Supper. It's not any of these things that I do. It's not my ministry. Those things are all helpful, but I'm going to tell you the one thing that is moving my heart toward loving God fully, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the good news. It is the news that even while I was yet his enemy, he died for me. That God proves his love for me and that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. It is the knowledge that I was the one who should be cursed. I was the one who should be hung on a tree. I'm the one who deserves the eternal punishment and separation from God. But God in His grace and His mercy and His love sent His Son to die for me. To take my place so that I could become a son of God. So you could become a child of God. Your first love is the love of a crucified Savior. It is the love of one who the crown of thorns is upon his head and nails are in his hands and his feet whose back is bloodied whose sorrow is more than we can imagine, whose despair is greater than we could ever know, and whose judgment and wrath are deeper than we could ever possibly feel, and we wouldn't want to. The very first way we begin to make God's priorities, our priorities for real, is we stay gripped by grace. And to the extent that my prayer and my Bible study and my church attendance and my worship and all those things, to the extent that those things keep pointing me to that major idea, that is what will shape my heart. That is what will increase my love. That is what will stimulate my gratitude. That is what will accelerate my affections. That is what will rejuvenate my heart. You there? 
That, thank you, John, that, that is what keeps us in our first love. That's what keeps us in our first love. Paul said this, he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because there is no greater message. There is no greater message. I used to be enamored when I was a young Christian with books like Deeper Truths of the Spirit. Deeper Insights. Oh yes, you're a believer, but now you've got to go deeper and you've got to learn deeper truths. <laughs> I love, you know, Carl Barth, who was, was a major, major theologian within the church. I mean, he was a, a genius uh, and a theologian, probably without really comparing his time frame. Um, I'm not advocating everything he said, but I mean, he, that was the kind of brain he had. And somebody asked Carl Barth one day, he said, what's the greatest thing that you've learned in all of your theological studies? And Barth was an old man at this point. He just begins to go. Jesus loves me, this I know. <laughs> because that's the greatest thing. He loves us. Be gripped by grace. You, why do we keep saying, preach the gospel to yourself? Why do we keep preaching the gospel? Why do we keep reminding us of the gospel? Because it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. It is the gospel that is the power of God unto motivation. It is the gospel that is the power of God unto inspiration. It is the, the gospel is the power of God unto transformation. Because you see, all that's included in salvation. Our salvation is not a one-time event that stops. Our salvation is a progression that is settled legally once for all at the cross. But it's inspiration and transformation and, and, and its development grow and grow. Out of what? Out of the gospel. Be gripped by the gospel. And then secondly, we have to close. Be radical, be radically committed to worship. And you can't do that without being gripped by the gospel. Abraham looked up, and what did he see in the thicket? He saw this ram. God had, it wasn't there before. I don't know how it got there, but God provided it. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. The Lord provided the ram for Abraham, the Lord provided the lamb for you and for me. If we are gripped by the gospel, the more we're gripped by the gospel, what does the song say? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow what? Strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The scripture says, as we behold him, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. From one degree of glory to another. To a heart that is more and more and more in love with Jesus. In love with what God has done and wanting to be 
his person. And we come to a place where we can say, God, this is not about me. This is not about my reputation. My reputation is not more important to me than you are. My legacy is not more important to me than you are. My dreams, my goals, my hopes, my occupation, my career path, my, my, my uh, future choices, my retirement, all that stuff that I really in the back of my mind think I still have some measure of control over. No, God, none of that, none of that is more important than you are. And it is a good practice, my friends, for us to regularly take all of this stuff and bring it before God and say, God, help me to love you more than this. Let me love you more. Let me trust you with all of this. Let me trust you with my future. Let me trust you with my hopes. Let me trust you with my dreams. I'm going to lay it all there before you. God, I lay it down before you. I want to love you more. I want to be gripped by grace so that I can be radically committed in my worship to you that I would not hold on to any sacrifice that you ask of me. But the only way we get there is being gripped by grace. The more we are gripped by grace, the more we are shattered by his love, the more we are undone by his mercy the less of a hold these things have on us. But they do seek to control. They do seek to take ownership of our lives. Holding on to things with open hands is a very disciple way to live. It's not my goals. It's not my dreams. It's not my plan. It's not my outline. It is God. It's all yours. It's all yours. Lead me in the everlasting way.